Uh, I don't say this to, uh, I should note this in front of all of you that I, I don't say this to, to flatter Timothy, but I'm really excited about the work you're doing in apologetics and, um, and here and what you've done here at, at, at my alma mater and, and the work being done at Southern with apologetics. So thank you. And it's an honor to be here. Uh, persuasion is hard. Um, if you don't believe me, just have kids. Right? I mean, uh, and wait, right? Because when they, I'm not talking about when they can't talk. I mean, wait until they can talk if you're a young parent. And it's like, wait till they're about 14, just hypothetically. Someone speaking might have a 14-year-old. And try to convince them of just about anything that they don't want to do. Sure, I can make my kids do things, but I mean convince them, persuading them, convincing them that what I'm saying is actually in their best interest. And it tests every fiber of my ability as an apologist. And it's a humbling experience. And I am their dad. In the best of circumstances, in trusted relationships, persuasion can be difficult. But in a post-Christian society, when Christianity is increasingly viewed as a social ill, along with the polarization we're experiencing right now, which as Andy Crouch has described, and I think this is right, he says the biggest challenge of our time today is shrinking circles of trust. Then in this climate, gospel persuasion can feel overwhelmingly hard. And so what I want to do in this lecture is actually get into it. How do we persuade modern pagans? And I don't use... And please don't hear me using the term pagan as a kind of insult, like those pagans. It's not how I'm using the term. I'm using the term pagan in the sense that T.S. Eliot used the term when he said, really, we have two options. And we have two options. The two main options in the West will be a kind of paganism or a kind of Christianity. And, and, and what he meant by paganism, and Stephen Smith, who I mentioned in my previous lecture, has, has written a book on this. And, and, and what he means is by pagan, it's not, uh, as we heard last night, of, of course, not necessarily people actually worshiping in pagan temples, although we do see some weird stuff going on, right, um, that we would find very weird. But what he means, what Elliot and Smith mean by paganism, is that people who seek ultimate fulfillment in the present by worshiping the created rather than the creator. In other words, they try to, to make gods out of things in this world. Um, and that's what I mean by modern paganism. And in that way, it's all around us. In other words, we're spiritual beings. We're worshiping beings. We're going to worship something. In his 1987 Gifford lecture on natural, philosoph uh, natural theology, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre helps us to begin to come to terms with the nature of the challenge that we're facing. McIntyre begins his address by pointing out a feature of the history of the Gifford lectures. These are famous lectures. Um, and, uh, and, but the history of them, as McIntyre narrates these lectures, would disappoint Lord Gifford and his colleagues. Over, established over 100 years ago, the lectures set out to enlist star academics, and continues today, to 
promote, and this is quote, promote and diffuse the study of natural theology in the widest sense of the term. In other words, the knowledge of God. Unfortunately, however, McIntyre says, the series has failed to secure more than a minimal agreement within philosophy upon how it is rational to proceed in respect of the formation and criticism of beliefs. The lectures, as McIntyre gives an account of them and, and, and describes them, are, are, are illustrative of a problem that plays contemporary philosophy. This is McIntyre here, this quote. It's not, of course, that philosophers of each particular contending school and party do not supplement the inadequate resources of a shared minimum rationality by schemes of argument which enable them to transcend the limitations of that shared minimum. Scientific materialists, Heideggerians, possible world theorists, phenomenologists, Wittgensteinians, and a host of others all do so. But there exists no, and here's the point I want you to see, but there exists no generally agreed way of resolving the issues which divide the protagonists of these alternative and incompatible standpoints. To explain this problem, McIntyre maps out the major rival forms of rationality of the past 200 years. The dominant approach in the 19th century was held by what he calls encyclopedists, who were, quote, committed to a, the notion of a single unitary rationality. This was rarely, explicitly, uh, rarely an explicitly stated philosophy. For the most part, it was simply an assumption about how knowledge acquisition worked universally. One, and this is a quote again, one which every educated person can without too much difficulty be brought to, uh, to, to agree in acknowledging. In other words, all rational persons conceptualize data in one and the same way and will report the same data and the same facts. Just follow the science, right? <laughs> The, the, the problem, according to McIntyre, is that ironically, the encyclopedic mode of inquiry has become one more fetism, and a fetism which increasingly flies in the face of contemporary realities. Encyclopedias seem unable to recognize that there is no single neutral standard of rationality by which we can adjudicate substantial philosophical disagreements independently of a metaphysical context. I'm going to translate this. Say with me. So some of the most outspoken modern atheists, and even ironically, some Christians who act as if they are just following the data and only using logic are in some sense descendants of these 19th century encyclopedists. Now the second group, the genealogists, as McIntyre refers to them, take up a study of history to dig underneath the assumed universal principles of the encyclopedias to unveil what he calls modern scholarly pretensions for what they really are. In contrast to the encyclopedic assumption, assumption of progress, the genealogists argue that the notion of progress was rooted in telos, which itself can only be posited uh, uh, contingently and cannot be determined universally by universal methods and that no cosmopolitan view of progress was achievable. Moreover, there could be no neutral objectivity because there was no view from nowhere. We cannot view the world impartially, free from our particular context and personal histories. When the genealogists are charged, as they often are, 
with appearing to make claims and conduct inquiries into the truth of things that require some sorts of some, the same sorts of arguments used by the encyclopedists, the genealogists reply that they're actually just playing along in order to unmask the universal claims of the, the encyclopedists and reveal them as parochial expressions of rationality. So McIntyre sums up, don't worry, we're going to get to practical things in a minute, but McIntyre, McIntyre sums up where this leaves us. So we have matched against each other two antagonistic views. The encyclopedia's conception of a single framework within which knowledge is discriminated from mere belief, progress towards knowledge is mapped, and truth is understood as the relationship of our knowledge to the world through the application of those methods whose rules are the rules of rationality as such. Nietzsche, as a genealogist, takes there to be, mul uh, to be a multiplicity of perspectives within each of which truth from a point of view may be asserted, not truth as such, an empty notion about the world, an equally empty notion. There are no rules of rationality as such to be appealed to. There are rather strategies of insights and strategies of subversion. End of quote. So, okay, given these options between the genealogical approach, which when its own sword is thrust against it, fails to escape the blade of deconstruction, and the encyclopedic approach, which clearly affirms universal truth, with humans having a singular substantive rationality by which to find it, it is in some sense understandable that encyclopedic reasoning has held sway for the past 200 years over much of Christian apologetics. Yet by, by failing to recognize the contingency of human rationality, the finitude of our interpretations of the world, and the impact of sin, apologetics have too often used an encyclopedic approach that as McIntyre, I would suggest, shows fairly convincingly, it, it, it actually can no longer be justified. So if the encyclopedic approach cannot be salvaged as a method for settling disputes between rival forms of rationality, each with their own way of reasoning, where does this leave us as apologetics? <laughs> How do I persuade my 14-year-old? <laughs> That's what I'm really wanting to get out of reading Augustine, right? <laughs> If this is not a big enough challenge, if this is 1987, if this is not a big enough challenge, things have moved further along since the late 80s when McIntyre gave his lectures. For the genealogist's critiques of an encyclopedic rationality and the rejection of, uh, in some sense, Christendom has, uh, as an unrivaled authority in the West, have left openings. Openings that have been filled by new authorities and strange myths that our new pagans reason from and, and within. In her sweeping look at our current religious landscape with her book, Strange Rights, Tara Isabella Burton helps us understand our apologetic, our apologetic terrain from the ground level. The religiously unaffiliated, the nuns, as they have been labeled, are the fastest growing demographic in America. We better pay attention here, guys comprising a quarter of a population, almost 40% of those born after 1990. And yet, despite what the label might suggest, Burton reveals that this group is anything but non-religious. Westerners, as it is, aren't exactly shunning religion. They are instead remixing religion, creating their own bespoke religions, mixing and matching spiritual and aesthetic and experiential and philosophical traditions. The media and consumeristic forces have been happy to swoop into the space 
left by the dominance of Christianity and offer grand stories and promises of salvation forming our visions of the good and beautiful toward their shows, products, and services. As post-Christian sensibilities are formed by a consumeristic individualism that sees personal choice as an ultimate end, Christianity with its call to die to self and the religion's own checkered past is deemed the villain of a drama that the West is only to begin is is only beginning to be liberated from. That's the narrative deep within their imagination. Whether it be the encyclopedist champions of enlightenment humanism, casting aspersions on religious superstitions, in particular Christianity, the therapeutic spirituality of the progressive remixed, rejecting the structural norms of institutional religions and its suppression of personal identity, UBU, or some combination thereof, a normative coming of age story with a value laden telos with a value uh, laden goals that they inherit through their social imaginary frames their logic and also narrates why they are rejecting Christianity whether they fully are aware of how that story is forming their telos and narrating their imagination the question then becomes how we reason with people in a you do you therapeutic culture which assumes instrumental logic and the freedom to pursue personal preferences as an end to itself. If we invite modern-day pagans to simply look more closely at a form of encyclopedic rationality, they won't have much incentive to take us up on the offer. And if they do, this kind of rationality will, will be unlikely to make much sense to them. The remix will opt out of the proposal for an encyclopedic thought experiment to go on living their life. You only live once. Pursuing what they feel to be fulfilling and imagined to be good, their moral and aesthetic visions being formed not according to syllogisms, but rather along the logic of the dominant cultural narratives in which they live and breathe and have their being. So I hope you can see the problem. The traditional apologists equipped with evidences that demand a verdict will likely not make much headway with the religious remixed. We can see why it's tempting for many to throw their hands in the air in frustration. To simply say, well, they're anti-intellectual and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And yet, point number two, we should still try to persuade. In the midst of these challenges, it could be easy for an academic to become comfortable simply talking theology in the safe confines of the classroom or in their own religious community. Or it could be tempting as a pastor to simply pack it in, appeal to the base. But many Christians in the West, the, the Christians that I spend time with, don't feel the luxury that these insulated contexts provide. I wonder if you feel that luxury. For the father whose daughter is deconstructing, for the mom who's grappling with what it feels like God's absence as her prayer requests seemingly go unanswered. For the counselors who have angst-ridden believers confess their doubts to them weekly. For the pastor who, in the midst of polarization, will not give up on creating a culture of evangelism in their congregation. For the college student burdened over his lost friends. For the preacher who's straining with everything he has each week 
to battle the cultural narratives that are catechizing his flock. For these such people, apologetics is not a theoretical exercise. For these saints, Peter's call to be ready to give an answer for the reason for their hope isn't a hypothetical. They're grasping to stay afloat amidst their own doubt. By the way, Augustine, he's, he's dealing with questions his whole life. He's, and this, one of the things, confessions, is asking a lot more questions than he answers. Go back and read it. So th- these are people that are grasping to stay afloat amidst their own doubt. They're searching for how to commend the gospel. They're looking for ways to persuade the people in their pews, in their local pubs, that God is real and is to be worshipped. They look at their 14-year-old and say, no, he really is real. You really should worship him. The Great Commission compels us as Christ's disciples to keep trying. And I believe Augustine can help us. Confessions and the City of God together offer us an approach that can help us meet the challenges of non-transferability, which McIntyre brings up in his work, and the therapeutic consumerism of our new pagan neighbors. And here I want to point out three Augustinian steps. If you've tuned out, I completely understand it's early in the morning. (laughs) It's been a lot. Okay. I would just say this is the most important part that I'm going to give you. Okay. This is the most important part. So if you can, focus in here. The first step in Augustine's meta approach is on display in confessions. He interprets his past in order to invite others to journey with him as he tries on a life that follows the narratives of achievement and glory. The the narratives of a kind of ancient meritocracy, you are what you achieve and you better be great. Hmm. That's hard to relate to, isn't it? Uh, Manichaeism, right? The narratives of Manichaeism, skepticism, Neoplatonism. He turns to their authorities to critically engage them as one who has experienced them from the inside. Here are the wounds. The problem, one of the problems, they don't work. Intellectually, but existentially. Though Confessions is written with a Christian audience in view, no doubt, Augustine lays layers his narrative so that it is relevant for multiple audiences, including those outside the church. A 5th century contemporary reading Confessions would have seen each of the aforementioned uh, views, Manichaeism, Skepticism, Neoplatonism, as plausible options in competition with Christianity. Just as modern readers of, say, C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy might imagine themselves adopting Lewis's early atheism. In books one through eight, Augustine testifies to how each of the world and life views he adopted before returning to Christianity ultimately failed to deliver on its promises. And he also recognizes how God providentially used each in his conversion, Neoplatonism in particular playing a key role. Augustine autobiographically reflects on the various faults of these other views and how he discovered these errors. Augustine appreciated Faustus, who was a Manichaean teacher, for his humility, yet yet the latter even admitted to not having the answers his followers believed he was capable of providing. The Manichaeans gave Augustine initially a way to process evil, but they they critiqued characters of 
caricatures of Christian doctrine, and their books fail to make good on their scientific and epistemological claims. Cicero Sertensius aspired Augustine to seek the truth, yet it lacked the name of Christ. When Augustine later tried on academics, they left him disappointed, in his own words, doubting everything and wavering. And for as much as he praises the Platonists for helping him address some of his intellectual problems concerning the nature of evil and God, their pride led them to attempt to ascend to God through a kind of disembodied contemplation rather than to humbly trust the incarnate God who had descended to mediate for them. Reaching for God on their own terms, Platonists refused the grace needed to cure the human condition, failed to account for the goodness of creation, and proved existentially, experientially unstable. In each case, Augustine searches for and finds common ground as he explains where he found the teacher attractive or how the teacher helped him on his journey, and yet each is revealed to lack coherence, explanatory power, and the ability to make good on its claims and aspirations. This first step of internal critique, often called by philosophers an imminent critique, is apparent also in the opening ten books of the City of God. There's actually connections, I don't have time, we show them in the book, between both of these works. In the City of God, Augustine takes up Romans' key cultural and philosophical sources and invites readers to come along as he surgically explores them. He spends much of his time in these opening books responding to the pagan critique of Christianity, the one that initially prompted him to begin the work. The pagan story follows a fairly straightforward plot. Romans' glorious rise and reign was due to the favor of the gods and the homage that was paid to them by Roman citizens. By allowing worship of the gods to wane and a Christian age to emerge, the empire lost favor with the gods and its citizens accepted a way of life that led to her downfall. In other words, Christianity was the big civic problem. Christianity had gotten big enough that it was like the pagan elites were saying Christianity is the problem in society. Oh, it's hard to relate. Um, hopefully you see the connections here. In response, Augustine offers an anti-nostalgic retelling of Rome's history, challenging the coherence and logic of the pagans' claim using their own sources of authority. You heard some of this last night. For example, citing Virgil's Aeneid, Augustine asked why they would entrust Rome's fate to the gods who were defeated in Troy. If these gods cannot protect Troy, though, as we heard last night, Augustine does not believe in the gods himself and merely follows the pagans' reasoning for argument's sake, which is a helpful approach in apologetics, why would they blame the Christian god for not protecting Rome? Christian beliefs were assumed to be wrong because the people's social imaginary had primed these elite pagans to believe that the Roman way and the empire was the good, was the ultimate. After all, they had embraced Roman exceptionalism, essentially saying, we are the world's superpower and hope. The Pax Romana and our march to benevolently civilize the world testifies to the superiority of the Roman way. They reason within this normative narrative, which they had, had inherited through the glorious stories passed down to them, along with the pagan practices and symbols that accompanied them. Augustine, therefore, understands he can't, cannot just offer narrowly construed arguments for Christianity. See, see, he gets this. This is what he's doing in the book. He must funk, first puncture their inflated story of Rome, the myth that their logic operates within. He has to go after the, their narrative. He does, so, he does so through appealing to their own sources, but he goes further. 
Augustine levels the playing field, bringing to the fore the faith that they have in their political and theological authorities. And then he digs deeper to deconstruct the underpinnings of their assumptions, a strategy that anticipates the 19th century genealogist I discussed earlier. As part one of The City of God Progresses, his political and theological critique increasingly takes center stage. The theologian Charles Matthew elaborates on Augustine's approach. This is what he says. All empires are eventually held accountable under God's sovereignty, for every empire eventually falls into the idolatry of self-worship. This theological interpretation of empire gives Augustine tremendous critical leverage. Now the argument, catch this, now the argument is, now the argument is not between belief and unbelief. Right? So we often go into these conversations, belief versus unbelief but between rival forms of believing. He's, evil, he, he's leveling out the playing field. We're all believing to understand is another way to put it. After establishing that we humans are all believers and worshipers of something, four apologetic questions emerge. What are you ultimately seeking? Who do you trust to deliver you? How's that going? How will it end? The Roman myth is not only historically inaccurate, even according to their own authority, but it lacks explanatory power, is existentially unsatisfying, and fails to deliver on its own promises. Those who have embraced it have put their faith in themselves and their own fallen community to deliver peace, justice, and happiness, but these are promises it can never fulfill. The claims to such divine gifts serve only as a mask for their libido dominante. Self-worship leads to a lust for domination that is self-dominating. In Augustine's word, in fact, it is the very lust for domination itself, to mention no others, that ravages the hearts of mortals by exercising the most savage kind of domination over them. Why are we so unhappy? In the second half of part one of the city, Augustine recognizes the need to dig deep enough in the soil of, of Rome to pull up the very underpinnings of Roman culture. Hence his engagement with Virgil and Vero, both instrumental architects of the Roman social imaginary. His strategy of offering an eminent critique is also on display as he steps inside the revered work of the Neoplatonist in the final part of, of book one. I'm going to skip a section because we dealt some with the Platonists last night, so in light of time. Um, but I do want to say one of the, his critiques is that their approach leads to a kind of fault happiness, which will be relevant to where I'm going. Okay. Step two, prepping for healing. Step two, prepping for healing more than a critique. If Augustine ended here with step one and we focus primarily on his critiques of other views or even of the foundations of an entire civilization, we might retrieve something along the lines of many useful and valuable contemporary cultural critiques today, like, like something like Coral Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the, of the Modern Self, which is insightful and learned. But Augustine isn't finished there. After all, he's not satisfied with cultural critique. He's aiming for conversion. I dare say, Augustine was an evangelist. 
He's performing something akin to exploratory surgery, inviting the pagans to stay awake during the procedure so that they might see their internal problems and become willing to take the medicine of, that the great physician offers. Or to build upon Curtis Chang's metaphor, he's read a really helpful book called Engaging Unbelief, Curtis Chang. It's, it, it needs a, a bigger reading than it's received. He wrote it in like 1990, I think. But here's Chang's metaphor. Augustine enters in and deconstructs these competing narratives, not to annihilate them, but to capture them within a Christian meta-narrative. As Chang explains it, in the City of God, Augustine offers a meta-narrative that contains stories within its story. And so it essentially weaves the strands of the fallen earthly city with the glorious City of God into a narrative net that will encompass the challengers. This is a critical point. Augustine is not just showing that the competing narratives are simply wrong. He is also pulling on the strands of their their narrative, on the strands of their narratives that are true, or at least closer to the truth. And the facts they get right, and then reinterpreting them in a way that fits into the true story, the gospel story, a more compacious story with greater explanatory power. Augustine reveals how, in the words of Rowan Williams, classical society and classical political thought provide ideals for the corporate life of humanity, which they cannot provide the means to realize. Deep down, they were aspiring to some right things, but they couldn't realize it, not in the way they were pursuing it. This critique of society having the possibility of vision without transformation is on display as he narrates his, as Augustine narrates his personal experience with the Platonists in Confessions. A 5th century Neoplatonist reading Confessions would be affirmed by Augustine's praise while also being challenged by the humility, incarnation, and resurrection of Christ. For while Augustine uses their philosophy, he uses it to help prepare them to see that the best of their philosophy promises what only Christ can ultimately deliver. Even for an elite mind such as Augustine, the ecstatic platonic experiences are ultimately unstable and inadequate. Augustine's own story testifies that Platonism can function as a bridge, but that travelers need more than an intellectual bridge to find their home. What they need is a person. What they need is Christ. While Confessions concentrates on the individual, the city of God, in the city of God, Augustine turns his attention to the social order itself. Augustine's aim is not to destroy the partial or misdirected aspirations for societal harmony and justice wherever he finds them, but to show how they can only be fully realized in God. So while Augustine is performing exploratory surgery, he's doing so in a way that prepares the patient to be willing to try out the medicine of Christ as the cure for the ailments is at this point, Augustine can help us today. And here, and again, here's the upshot. It can help us both challenge and witness to the goodness of the gospel in our consumeristic, therapeutic age when people are searching for fullness and peace that late capitalism's vision of the good life promises but ultimately fails to deliver. The evidence for this failure, we have got to lean in on. The evidence, the data, is all around us. We live in an age where we have cast off ancient wisdom for a logic of self-expression. Now personal freedom functions as a salvific end to itself. Consumerism, 
and pop psychotherapy have imitated the means of grace. And yet these modern prescriptions have often not worked out so well for us. The pursuit of individual freedom as an end to itself has meant the loss of a moral logic for sacrificial love. Our consumerism has resulted in a frenzy of superficial activity, which in moments of despondency has, has left many wondering, is this all there is? In, our, in, in response, our pop psychology has removed neither our despair nor our anger. And the research is indicating that our screens have left a generation not bowling alone, as Robert Putnam famously wrote. Who bowls anyway? Sorry, bowlers. But instead, no, we're not bowling alone. We're scrolling alone. Anxiously searching for identity and true community. And as William McLean has shown in his article, The Strange Persistence of Guilt, with the absence of the biblical doctrines of sin and atonement, our culture has lost the resources needed to truly forgive and be forgiven. People still feel shame. I spent the last five years working with young professionals. The guilt, the shame, still very much there. In an attempt to escape this discomfort, they shame others. Our modern myths, though promising heaven on earth, have instead led to a very different place. And this is where Augustine's eudemistic vision, his philosophy as a way of life, his moral psychology that diagnoses the ravaging effects of idolatry and disordered loves on the individual and the earthly city provide us a model, a model that can both speak with, against, and ultimately for today's religious remix. Consider Apple's hit TV show, The Morning Show. You guys seen The Morning Show? Anybody? A few? You're like my Beeson students. I'm like, guys, come on, guys. Watch some TV. Come on. What's the matter with you? I'm, read and watch. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Okay, so, okay, the morning show. And it takes, what I was, takes us behind the curtain of what it feels like to have climbed the ladder, not just to the seat of, of power in Augustine's Roman Empire, as Augustine had, but to one of the positions of fame and influence in America, the pinnacle of entertainment and media. One might interpret the morning show as offering a, a modern secular version of an Augustinian-style cultural and anthropological analysis sans divine grace, without divine grace. Reese Witherspoon plays an upstart anchorwoman, Bradley Jackson, with aspirations to change the world. With her tenacious personality and a good bit of luck, all of a sudden she finds herself hosting the morning show on one of the major tele national television networks in New York City. A small town girl from a broken home, she embodies the kind of rags to riches story we Americans love to tell. She has arrived, admired by millions, she spends her day, days with the rich and famous and is ready to use her platform to really make a difference. Yet reality sets in. Her own dysfunctional past contributes to self-destructive behaviors that will not magically change with new circumstances. Underneath the glitz and glamour of her new job, she finds herself in a world that, where no one is satisfied, a world of narcissism and backstabbing, a polis that promised Eden but is closer to hell on earth. 
She is absorbed into a community that, in Augustinian terms, has in practice deified fame, money, and power. For in them they have imagined a kind of imminent salvation. That's the pagan part, a kind of imminent salvation. And yet everyone, and we mean, and I mean just about everyone in the show, including Jackson, is on the verge of either a panic attack or vainly pursuing diversions, read Pascal, vainly pursuing diversions to hide their own misery. We can only imagine how if Augustine, and this is the type of stuff I do, if Augustine teleported to our time, he would see in these modern pictures a portrait of his own ancient self. With a sigh, he might recall the scene he wrote long ago when he, on the fast track to worldly fame himself and en route to deliver a speech to the emperor, bemoaned his plight. My heart was issuing furnace blasts, anxiety over this assignment, and seething with fever of the obsessive thoughts disintegrating me from within as I passed down a street in Milan and noticed a destitute beggar. The beggar, Augustine would recall, was drunk, finding an illusory joy at the bottom of a bottle, while Augustine and his friends, with all their achievements and pride in hand, are in even worse shape, he says, living with, as he puts it, the many sufferings of our insanity. While the drunk will sober in the morning, Augustine will remain sozzled by his delusions with no relief in sight. While outsiders would see Augustine liberated and free to enjoy the pleasures of life, we can imagine himself comparing himself, trapped in the same dazzling prisons as the characters in the morning show. He says, my longings sharply prodded me to drag along a load of my own unhappiness that was heaped up higher with the exhaustion of dragging it. Like his confessions, Augustine would tell us the morning show portrays a world of false gods, themselves brutal taskmasters, making promises but always demanding more. Offering a mirage, they bind humans to serve their demands while hollowing their capacity to truly flourish. In contrast with the picturesque skyline, luxury apartments overlooking the city and European villas opening up to vineyards, the pictures from the inside in the show are the characters trapped in darkness, pain, and loneliness. Clinging to the material world, they, long, they are a long way from true joy. Surprisingly, though, even Augustine's view of a fallen nature is given voice in the show. As one, as one character enthusiastically declares to Jackson in a climactic season, in the first season, human nature is surprisingly universal and it's surprisingly disappointing. And yet, the show, the morning show, offers a more nuanced picture of human nature than cursory interpretations might suggest. In an interview after the credits of one episodes, of one of the episodes, Witherspoon reflects on what the series is attempting to depict. In a line that sounds like it could have been penned by Augustine himself, which I know is a remarkable claim here. But she explains, and I, and I have this up, as human beings, we are fallible. We are capable of horrible things. But then she adds, we are capable of wonderful things. At moments, the series even gestures towards the possibility of grace. Jennifer Aniston, 
who plays Witherspoon's co-host in the show, says the show is attempting to address the big question. What's the big question? This is, this is her. This is Anison. Is there redemption for anyone? Is there, uh, is there forgiveness? The morning show reminds us that we live in a world, even in its more secular pockets, where people still know of guilt and loneliness and deeply feel their own unhappiness while also longing for some sort of redemption and forgiveness and something like grace. But as depicted in Aniston's questions, no clear source of hope is on offer. Given the writer's dark depiction of human nature, could redemption really come from ourselves? Forgiveness in the show is at times held out as an ideal, but the explanation for why and the resources for how are left almost entirely unexplored. No source or logic for grace is on offer. This and these are our apologetic openings. Enter the church as a community living out the drama of the gospel and thereby serving as a hospital for the restoration of the broken and rebellious image bearers. In the age of the therapeutic, in the triumph of the therapeutic, as Philip Reef famously wrote in 1966, when questions about how to feel better now have replaced questions about eternal salvation, Augustine might surprise us. Because Augustine would have us reconsider how far those questions are actually apart. For the eternal one, and here I'm summarizing, but you're reading, if you're in the class, you're reading City of God, you see this in here. For, for the eternal one came down into our world, taken on flesh and our infirmities to pay for sin, defeat evil, and heal our diseased souls. Augustine loved the medicinal metaphor. Linking these questions of eternal salvation and human flourishing together will require a recalibration to see mourning and happiness as well as meekness and flourishing, not as opposites, but as entailments of becoming whole in a fallen world. Now that's a challenge, but it's a challenge we're in good company to take for this is the paradox, for this paradox is a key move in Jesus' most famous sermon. Augustine will remind us, as the city of God on pilgrimage, we are an apologetic people who are experiencing the cure and thus turning away from pride to humility and from love of self to love of God and others. May, our, may this time in your life never be about pride, but about finding the cure in the love of God. Isn't that what our theology is about? Is, is about sanctification? The, now, and so we must embody this as we offer the cure. That's what First Peter's talking about, right? That they'll see the hope and then that they will ask you. So we embody this kind of hope in the midst of suffering. This is not prosperity gospel by any means. Step three then is, and I've already, I've already, uh, I'm already going here. I've already jumped into this. Step three, holistic therapy, subversive fulfillment through a better story. By entering their narratives and critiquing them from the inside while also establishing, um, by also establishing that we all believe and thus all depend on external authorities, 
Augustine reminds us that the genealogists weren't the first to make such arguments. By leveling the playing field, an Augustinian approach deconstructs the modern encyclopedists' illusions of being able to make progress in understanding the big questions of life without some kind of faith. Yet cutting through these rationalistic illusions is not an end to itself. Rather, the first step prepares interlocutors to consider the logic of, Christ of the Christian faith, which Augustine will present by inviting them into the gospel story by narrating how it explains the world and, take, and takes up their deepest aspirations and experiences in a redemptive narrative that leads to Christ. While also, and we're circling back around here, first lecture, while also offering ad hoc justifications and responses to objections along the way. To understand how evidential and classical, so here, evidential and classical arguments are coming in at this point, how they might fit within this curative metaphor. Imagine a doctor giving a patient the medicine that will heal them, or a surgeon inserting a stent, only for the body to reject what is given to save the person's life, at which point the doctor needs to pivot and address the new problems that arise. For Augustine, offering supporting arguments and responding to critics from within the Christian narrative operates analogously. In Confessions, Augustine also regularly responds to potential critiques. Christians or non-Christians struggling with restlessness and doubt stemming from disordered desires, the problem of evil, what they view as the implausibility of the Old Testament, or the seemingly naive faith of parents. All barriers to the faith Augustine wrestles with in Confessions finds in Augustine a figure who understands where they're coming from and responds to, the, to their objections autobiographically. And in the city of God, while he is, cer while he is certainly in the second half of the work, um, in, the, in the second half of the work, he, he regularly halts his progress of narrating the story, of giving them the cure. He's giving them the cure, the gospel, the story of creation and fallen redemption and the cure of Christ. But he regularly stops the story to respond to objections that threaten to undermine the logical or historical plausibility of the account. These observational and historical arguments can and should be updated and expanded, given the contextual developments in the fields of science and history. Yet my point is that Augustine uses forms of them and would almost certainly advise us to use them in some form today within his larger apologetic framework. I'll close now by bringing this all together. Here we go. Aimed ultimately at redemption rather than destruction, Augustine's apologetic approach allows for flexibility. He is not what we would call today an evidential or classical apologet apologist, though he does give logical and historical arguments in defense and support of the faith. Neither is his approach simply narrative-based or aesthetic, though, as we've seen, he leverages narrative apologetically and appeals to a knowing that is loving. So James K. Smith is certainly correct when he stresses that Augustine is writing in confessions to the imagination, appealing to the affections to move people into the story, into a different story. And he's right when he understands Augustine to giving us, and I'm quoting Smith here, the drama of a narrative instead of the argument of a treatise. Because his apologetic is aesthetic and Augustine knows the heart traffics in stories. Yet, this doesn't capture the whole of Augustine's apologetic approach. As Augustine narrates the biblical story and shows his opponents, longings make rational and existential sense within the true narrative of the world. He offers what I referred to earlier as ad hoc arguments drawing on metaphors, analogies, history, logic, empirical evidence from nature, in support of his claims and in response to his critics. As we've seen, his approach is multidimensional. 
as is his theological anthropology and his diagnosis of the human problem. And an Augustinian approach, thus, not only allows us to respond to the challenge of non-transferability, but also provides us with the resources to engage relevantly with today's remixed culture. This leads to a central point in what we call the Augustine way. While a framework, I hope you see, has emerged, it's Augustine's apologetic aim that grounds the elasticity of his approach. His aim is not to bury the dead, but to heal the sick. Rather than a battlefield with assassins or a morgue with undertakers, Augustine envisions the church as a hospital and himself as being in service to the great physician. So my friends, if you want to be an Augustinian apologist, hear this. Augustinian apologists go, go into surgery knowing they must cut. And they, therefore, bring along, as any skilled surgeon would, many different instruments. But the incisions are made carefully so that the wounds are accessible to the healing balm of Christ. Thank you.